Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. Hard to believe that we are almost finished with our series on the, the Minor Prophets. And so we've got tonight and then next Wednesday. And uh, we'll wrap things up with Malachi next week or for you Italians, Malachi. Uh, depending on how you want to say that. But uh, anyway, tonight we're going to look at Zechariah. I think you're aware of this, that no nation, race, or people group in the history of the world has been more ridiculed, more mistreated, more persecuted, and threatened to the point of extermination than the Jews. Beginning with Pharaoh uh, in the land of Egypt to Haman, and his wicked plot during the days of Esther in the Medo-Persian Empire, to Hitler during the World War II era, to the Palestinians and the Muslim nations that surround Israel today, Uh, this tiny nation has been the unique object of the world's hatred and scorn. As I've had the privilege of traveling uh, to different places uh, around the world, I think two of the most unforgettable experiences I've ever had traveling overseas was uh, one touring the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and uh, I've had the privilege of doing that a couple times on our two trips to Israel with our church, and, um, and then the other one was on a missions trip that I took in college. We went to Dachau, Germany, and we uh, went to the Nazi concentration camp there that's now a memorial, and uh, it's just sobering to walk through these places and try to get your mind around the vicious anti-Semitism that existed and still exists in the world today that, that drove people and drives people to commit unimaginable atrocities against their fellow man. But even though Israel has faced relentless opposition and relentless oppression from the dawn of her experience and uh, her existence... She, she continues to thrive to this day. And, and some would attribute that to Israel's resiliency as a people, but it's really a tribute to God's jealousy for his people. That's really what it is. It's, it's not so much about Israel's perseverance as, it's mu- as it is about God's preservation. God chose the nation of Israel out of all the other nations of the world to be the special object of his care and his affection. And what and it was through this uniquely set apart nation that he displayed his love and affection for us, really the rest of the world, uh, by providing us a savior from sin through their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And really the story of the nation of Israel passed present and future, is all about God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises that he made with his chosen people, starting back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when he promised Abraham uh, that he would bless him and and, and give him a, a people, give him a nation, and then ultimately give him a Messiah who would be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. And so while the Jewish people may have had an atrocious past, they have a glorious future, as do all who place their hope in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior. And because in the end, we know that Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. And, and you want to be on Jesus' side, right? Part, part of the, 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 the great victory over Satan and sin Uh, is that both Jews and Gentiles all over the world will worship and bow down to Christ and he will reign forever over those who he has chosen to save. And so tonight we're going to get a glimpse into into Christ's glorious reign through the book of Zechariah. I think that's what we've titled it here, yeah, Zechariah, God's glorious reign. And uh, someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, I walked in early here and they were thumbing through the book of Zechariah in anticipation of, of this message, and they said, how in the world are you going to teach the entire book of Zechariah in one sitting? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and, and frankly, I still don't know, okay? And I don't think I'm going to do a very good job of it tonight, because there's just way more for us uh, to cover than we have time. And so I'm hope, hopeful that uh, I can just familiarize you with this book uh, and that it will um, inspire you to maybe go back and, and read through it yourself from cover to cover. I did that earlier this week, and 
Um, it, it's very encouraging, very hope-filled. Uh, lots of um, imagery that doesn't necessarily uh, is not necessarily easy to interpret. Um, but with a good study Bible or a good commentary uh, by your side, I think you'll do just fine uh, in, in going a little deeper than we're going to be able to go tonight. Because uh, Zechariah has 14 chapters, which is the longest of the minor prophets. In fact, it's what you could call the major minor prophet. Zechariah is the major minor prophet. And its length isn't the only thing that sets Zechariah apart from the other minor prophets, but more importantly, it contains more prophecies about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ than any other prophetic book except Isaiah. So if you know anything about Isaiah, Isaiah is like all over the place, messianic prophecies, right, talking about Christ, and uh, Isaiah is quoted more by New Testament writers than any other book of the Old Testament, Um, and so um, we know about uh, Isaiah, and so Zechariah is second only uh, to Isaiah when it comes to messianic prophecy. Uh, for example, here are some of the here, here are just a few of the most familiar messianic prophecies found in the book of Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a white horse. Is that what it says? No, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Obviously, this was fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his triumphant entry, and it didn't appear that triumphant. He was on a donkey, not on some war horse, right? We find that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. How about Zechariah 11, 13? Zechariah eleven thirteen. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Obviously, that's a prophecy of what? Christ's betrayal by Judas for thirty pieces of silver. We find that in Matthew 27, verse 9. How about chapter 12, verse 10? Chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour it out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me, capital M, whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That phrase, uh, they will look on me whom they have pierced is obviously a prophecy of what? Christ's crucifixion, right? John 19, verse 37. How about chapter 13, verse 7? Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That, of course, is a reference to uh, when Jesus was arrested and... Uh, uh, he knew that uh, when he was going to be struck, the, the sheep were going to scatter as the disciples did. Uh, we see that in Matthew 26, verse 31. And then lastly, just uh, look at chapter 14, verse 4. Chapter 14, verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Uh, In other words, uh, Christ's second coming, I think, will be accompanied by great earthquakes, shifting of the land. Uh, rivers are going to break forth. The, the whole topography of Jerusalem is going to change when Christ's feet hit Mount of Olives. And so uh, I just, it seems just like yesterday where we were standing there uh, looking over uh, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives when we were there this spring. And, and just what a, a thrilling sight that is to think that we're standing close to where Christ is going to land when he returns. And uh, just, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing spot, the Mount of Olives. It's like everybody has to go to the Mount of Olives. If you go to Jerusalem, you've got to go to the Mount of Olives because it's so uh, picturesque and uh, it's so meaningful uh, because of the next time 
Christ returns to this earth, not in the rapture, but when he actually touches down in the second coming, it's going to happen at the Mount of Olives. How do we know that, by the way? Zechariah 14.4. You're looking at me like, I don't know. Well, we just read it. Zechariah 14.4. Hasn't happened yet, right? That was not a trick question, okay? Um, How about just look at how it goes on in chapter 14, verse 9. Again, uh, uh, to to be continued, if you will, or uh, stay tuned. Uh, this has not been fulfilled yet. And so we know it's, it's talking about Christ's second coming. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel. To, kings, to the king's wine presses, people will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Wouldn't that be amazing, right? I mean, that's the epitome of, of Jerusalem right now. It, it doesn't dwell in security, does it? I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. It's, it, there's, this, there's a sense of insecurity. This little, uh, this little tiny nation surrounded by these big bullies, right, uh, who have tried over the centuries to take their land from them, but God won't let them. Um, I think it's interesting, and, and I've mentioned this before, uh, for those um, maybe who are wrestling with whether or not there's a future for Israel, some would like to think, well, all the, all the promises that God made to Israel um, because they failed at their responsibility to be the witness nation that he wanted them to, uh, he, he, he put them on the shelf uh, and, he, and he raised up the church uh, in its place, in the place of Israel. And so all of the blessings and the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the church, and there is no future for Israel. Well, I would simply just say this, if all of God's promises of cursing were literally fulfilled, which they were, right? I mean, we're seeing this play itself out here. All these, all these promises, all these prophecies of cursing. If you don't change, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen to you. Did it happen to them? Absolutely. Exactly to the T. Then why would we not also believe that all of his promises of blessing will be literally fulfilled as well? Uh, you, seem to have, you just have to kind of cut the... You know, kind of cut the scriptures in half and interpret, you know, uh, all the cursings upon Israel literally and all the blessings figuratively. Doesn't make any sense, right? Why change your interpretive, your hermeneutic model, right? You just keep applying it literally all the way across the board. And so we believe there's a future for Israel. And, and that's what we see here in the minor prophets so clearly articulated. Um, and, and where we fit in as the church is, is, guess what? We're along for the ride at that point, right? When, when the Lord returns, we're along for the ride. And we're just a, we, get, we get to be a part of all the action um, as we're the ones who have been grafted in, right? The Gentiles who have been grafted into the vine. And we, we get the blessing of being a part of God's, God's people. Well, with that background, let's just look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And begin to familiarize ourselves with this man named Zechariah. He was one of, I think, 30 other people in the Bible named Zechariah. So it wasn't like his name was unique. But uh, here he says in chapter 1, verse 1, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, saying, we'll stop there, so notice uh, in, in, in some of the other uh, prof, minor prophets, we, we, we were flying blind. We, we really don't know who the guy was, what, what his background was, what time he ministered. We, we just have to assume that from other factors in, in the book. But here, Zechariah helps us out. He dates his ministry very precisely during the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, he's going to say uh, in verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, in the second year of, of Darius, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. So he's, he's helping us out here. So um, turn back quickly over to Ezra, because I want you to see here, um, just confirmed by Ezra and, and even Nehemiah, uh, when Zechariah ministered. Look at Ezra chapter 5. 
Ezra chapter 5, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Just go to Job and back up, right? If you can't find it. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So again, we know the book of Ezra uh, is, is uh, written by the scribe, right, Ezra, uh, and he's, he was chronicling the first group of people that came back from Babylonian exile, right, when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon, uh, King Cyrus made a decree and said, you guys can all go back home and you can rebuild your temple and, and repopulate your, your, your land, and so 50,000 people went, went back under the leadership of, of, of Zerubbabel, who was the governor, uh, along with um, uh, Joshua, who was the high priest, and uh, Ezra was a part of this as well. And so in chapter 6, uh, look, at, look at chapter 6, verse 14 of Ezra, again, the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. And so here they were coming back to rebuild the temple. Ezra's about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah is about rebuilding what? The walls, right? And so Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 4, interesting, uh, mentions um, Zechariah as well. Or I should say mentions his grandfather, Iddo. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Ido, verse 4. And so what we can discern from this is that Zechariah was born uh, into the priestly family of Aaron, Sometime during the Babylonian captivity, those 70 years in captivity, so he was from the priestly tribe, and he was another priest turned prophet, or called to be a prophet. And so when, uh, when, when Cyrus decreed that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem, Zechariah returned to Jerusalem with his grandfather, Ido, or Ido, along with 50,000 other, exile, or other um, people that had gone off in exile. And so he was a contemporary, again, of Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest. We're going to see him show up here uh, in chapter 3. He mentions him. And then, of course, Haggai, the prophet. His ministry, uh, he was a contemporary uh, of, of Haggai. Now, we, if you remember last time, we looked at Haggai, just two chapters. And uh, what, what was Haggai all about? Haggai was confronting the people for having dropped the ball. They had started building the temple and, uh, and they got discouraged, they got frightened, and so they stopped, and for some 15 years or so, they let it sit and collect dust while they were going to Home Depot, right, to build their houses. And they had to walk right by the temple to get to Home Depot, and, 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 and so what does Haggai show them? He said, what are you guys doing? Consider your ways. Uh, you say it's not the right time to, to build the temple, There's all the, you're making all these excuses, well, apparently you have plenty of time to build your own houses and not just, not just normal houses, you've you're got panel houses, you know, it's like our gymnatorium, we got panel in there, man, that's like really nice, right? So they're, they're building paneled houses and so uh, they, they had totally got their priorities out of whack and so Haggai confronted the Jews about their misplaced priorities and, they, and he exhorted them to get back to work. And to finish the construction of the temple, and it was very successful. It says that they were able to complete it shortly after uh, Haggai uh, confronted the, the people. Well, uh, somewhere in that same time frame, Zechariah threw his two cents in. But rather than confronting the Jews or rebuking the Jews, Zechariah took a different approach. And, and, and we're going to see this in his book, obviously a lot longer approach, uh, two, two chapters compared to 14 chapters, right? Um, but through a series of, of highly symbolic visions and messages and, and, and these weighty uh, burdens or oracles, he encouraged and he motivated them to complete the construction by reminding them that the temple was central to their heritage. This is all, I mean, this is central to who you are as a nation. And guess what? It is going to be the future dwelling place of the Messiah. 
that the Messiah is going to come to this second temple that you're rebuilding here. The, the great and glorious high priest who, who would offer up himself as a sacrifice for sin and provide you with salvation, he's coming, and so you need to get back to work. And so as one commentator said this, the, the people were not merely building a structure, they were building their future. And so they were to tackle that task with, with wholehearted zeal because the Messiah is coming. And so this was very comforting and very encouraging to a group of people who had recently returned from exile who probably felt powerless and vulnerable before their enemies. They had all the enemies around them, right, and, and uh, threatening them. The Samaritans didn't like the fact that they didn't let them work or help rebuild the temple. They said, no, we don't want you. You're half-breeds. So we'll do it ourselves. Well, they began to attack them and, and threaten them. And so here, Zechariah's prophecies gave them courage and gave them hope that God wasn't finished with them yet, that he had a glorious future in store for them. And so ultimately, Zechariah wanted them to know that God hadn't forgotten them and his plans for them were far from over. Anybody know what Zechariah means, the name Zechariah? God remembers. God remembers remembers. And that theme really dominates the entire book, namely that Israel will be blessed by God. Why? Because God remembers the covenant he made with their forefathers. He hasn't forgot it and he will be faithful. But future blessing is contingent upon present obedience. So he didn't want to, he didn't want them to presume, oh, we we got a great future in store for us and uh, we can live any way we want, right? Uh, no, he said you need to obey. So look at how he begins this in verse, verses 2 through 6. Before he predicts the future, he gets them to reflect on the past and he warns these returning exiles to learn from the mistakes of their ancestors. Notice he says in verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We could camp out on that verse for a while. I mean, that's the story of the prodigal son, Right? Who, who returns first? Is this, does God come after us or do we have to go back to God? Right? It sounds to me like he's waiting, he's waiting there, like the prodigal father, right? Or the, the, the son of the prodigal, or the father of the prodigal son, return to me that I may return to you. He wants to return to you. He's waiting with arms open wide, right? He's waiting for you to return. He's waiting for you to repent. He's waiting for you to come back home uh, so that he can embrace you, so that he can. Kill the fatted calf so that he can have a party and say, my son was lost, right? But now he's found. Don't ever sit out there in the pig pen waiting for God to come get you, right? If you've come to your senses and realize you've made a mess of your life by the sinful choices you've made, right? Humble yourself, get up and go home and fall at the Lord's feet and beg him for mercy and grace, and you know exactly how he'll respond. He will be gracious and kind. Do not be like your fathers, verse 4, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. He said, They heard the prophets before me. Your fathers, your grandfathers, they, they heard the prophets before me and they were crying out to them to return from their evil ways and from their evil deeds, but they didn't listen or give heed to me. I appreciate Fred praying that, that we would be good expository listeners. As I was reading through Zechariah this week, uh, I was reminded of all the references that I came across in Zechariah when I was doing research about what does the Bible say about listening and hearing, and ears, and uh, I, I have a, somewhere in an appendix, there's this list of verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse, all throughout the Bible, talking about listening or not listening, and I remember a number of them came from the book of Zechariah. And so they didn't listen, they didn't heed the voice of the prophets, and notice he says in verse 5, your fathers, where are they? Where are they? They're either dead, right, 
or they're still in exile, um, they're, they're experiencing, they're reaping what they sowed, right? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, who I commanded my servants and prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. You know what? We should have listened. <laughs> we should have listened. Um, we found out the hard way uh, that, that God's word is true. The prophets weren't lying. Um, and, and, but now we know. Because uh, God used that discipline uh, to lead us to repentance. So it's all good, right? Um, they, they came to their senses and they came back to the Lord. So the point is this. Um, Zechariah began his prophecy with a short history lesson, basically. He, he reminds the people of Israel that their forefathers had paid a high price for their sin. That they had disobeyed the law, they rejected the reproof of the prophets, and as a result, they suffered exile. And if Israel wanted to experience the blessing of the Lord, then they had to turn from their sin to the Lord. And so that's basically how he begins. And then the rest of the book, the rest of the 14 chapters, could be simply broken up into three sections. You've got chapters 1 through 6. The rest of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 6, you've got eight visions. And then chapters 7 and 8, you have four messages. And then in chapters 9 through 14, you have two burdens or two heavy, weighty uh, messages that he, that he gives. So you have eight visions, four messages, and two burdens. Again, we don't have near enough time to get through all of this, so I'm just going to do a quick flyover here. And, uh, and then hopefully draw some conclusions, uh, point out some implications, some applications for our lives. Uh, first of all, just this section about eight visions. Uh, we see here in, in verse 7, it says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechai, the son of Edu, as follows, I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, which with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said... Or, or with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, and he said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Um, again, just giving you a feel for these, these night visions. So apparently, uh, the, the, he Zechariah had eight visions all in one night. Didn't get much sleep that night, I would guess, um, if you're having these multiple visions. And they contain a variety uh, of information regarding the future of Israel. And they were so metaphorical or figurative uh, that, that he needed the help of an angel to interpret them. And he's saying, hey, angel, what, what does that mean? What is that picture of? I'm not sure what that means. And so you have, first of all, these horses among myrtle trees, which was basically prophesying how God would rebuild Zion and his people. Uh, in, in starting in verse 18, verse through the end of the chapter, you have four horns, this vision of a four horns and four craftsmen. Um, and it's basically talking about how Israel's oppressors will be judged. Very similar to uh, what we see in the book of Daniel. When you see, uh, what, Assyria, uh, you see Babylon, you see the Medes and the Persians, and then you see the, 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 the Greco-Roman, those four nations, right, get knocked off one at a time, um, and that was God punishing the Gentile world. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, you have a man with the measuring line, and he's basically talking about God will protect and glorify Jerusalem. Um, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, you see the cleansing of Joshua the high priest. Now I want to, I do want to just read this one because I think it's there's lots of application for us, and I think you'll just see it as I read it. A lot of imagery here that we can appreciate as New Testament believers. Now, chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So he's having a dream, apparently, a vision, dream of Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord, who is the second member of the Trinity, right? 
a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ, uh, and, and Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. What does Satan do, right, when it comes to you and me? What does he do? He accuses us before the Father and says, well, yeah, seriously, that's one of your kids? And he's doing that, she's doing that, she said that, she did that. And so he comes and accuses, right, the Father, accuses us before the Father, and that's where Jesus says, hey, listen, I covered, my blood covered that, right? Interesting how he goes on. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You've heard that expression, right? Uh, a, a piece of wood plucked out of the fire. I mean, it was burning. It was going to go. It was going to be consumed, right? And, 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 and Christ, you know, God reached in and plucked that brand from the fire. That's you. If you're a Christian, right, that's you. He plucked you from the fire because you were going to hell. I was going to hell. He plucked us from the fire. We are all brands plucked from the fire. And so here is the Lord, I believe the angel of the Lord, right, um, uh, defending us, if you will, saying, hey, he's one of my chosen ones. Notice verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. That sound familiar? That's us, right? We've got that filthy garment on, it's our sin. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Again, what a beautiful picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Verse 6, then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also my charge of my, have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing there. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch, capital B. Who do you think that is? The Messiah, another prophetic um, uh, messianic prophecy here of the Messiah. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, great imagery there uh, that we see um, applied to believers, right, in the New Testament by the New Testament writers. So that's why we can feel free to apply it to us because we see the New Testament writers apply that same imagery to us, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Christ being our defender, our advocate with the Father uh, who defends us against Satan's accusations. Love that. And then you've got chapter four. He's got, you've got a golden lampstand and olive trees, which is, again, talking about God's spirit is empowering Zerubbabel and Joshua. You're probably familiar. If you don't know any verse in Zechariah at all, you probably know this verse or at least have heard this verse. Uh, verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by what might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Have you heard that verse? Yeah, it's a very popular verse. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Again, reminding them that it's not Right? They can't minister in their own human uh, strength or their own power, but it's through the power of the Spirit of God. And then in chapter 5, you have this flying scroll um, talking about um, he lifts his eyes up again and he looks and he sees the scroll flying around. And the picture there is of individual sin being judged. And then uh, in chapter 5, verse 5, you've got this woman in a basket, kind of funky pictures here, right, <laughs> coming up here, a woman in a basket, uh, and this is talking about how our nation, the national sin will be removed, so the, 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 the sin of Israel will be removed. And then you finally have in chapter 6, um, you've got these four chariots that uh, God's judgment will descend on the nations. That's the picture there, is that God is going to judge the nations. But then notice you've got the symbolic crowning of Joshua. Tell me what this symbolizes, even without the angel helping you out tonight, right? 
verse 11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, capital B, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yet it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between, between the two offices. Uh, now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jedi, Hen, Hen, and the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Obviously that is a reference not so much to, to, to Joshua who was never the king. He never served as the king. Right? So who is that ultimately talking about? Jesus Christ. Who will be both king and priest. Dual offices. I was talking about the dual office of, 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 of king and priest. We also know he was also a prophet, right? That Christ was the prophet, priest, and king. Um, again, these visions mix the work of the Messiah in both his first and second coming. Uh, we, again, if you were to read through these uh, uh, later on this, tonight or this week, you would, you would say, well, is, he, is this talking about the first coming or is this talking about the second coming? And the answer to that question is what? Yes. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to know exactly, is this the first coming, is this the second coming? And if you realize, okay, this wasn't fully fulfilled in Christ's first coming, that must mean there's a dual fulfillment. And again, like the other prophets, Zacharias saw only the peaks, the mountain peaks of God's program. He didn't, he, he didn't see the, the valleys in between, right? You kind of get up and you're climbing up this mountain. All you see is this one peak. You say, oh, look at the Lord's, the Messiah is coming. So you climb up this mountain peak and you get up at the top and you're like, whoa, there's another mountain peak out there. That means he's coming again. What's this big old interval? What's this big old valley we got to walk through to get to the other mountain peak, right? That, that was, that's the picture of biblical prophecy. You have to keep that in mind. So sometimes you kind of, there's a double meaning, there's a double a prophecy or double fulfillment. So you've got these eight visions, and then you get, have these four messages in chapter 7 and 8. Um, and, and just look at the verse, first three verses of chapter 7. The, the, the title in my Bible says, Hearts Like Flint. That's not a good thing. You don't want a heart like a rock, basically. <laughs> is what he's saying, a rock-hard heart. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? And so basically they came asking um, they were asking Zechariah, hey, should we continue to fast? They, they had begun a fast. It wasn't anything that they were commanded to do by the Lord, but they began this fast uh, in a way to um, uh, somehow make penance for all their sin. And they were there in Babylon. And so while they were in exile for those 70 years, they, they, they came up with this routine uh, about fasting uh, in the fifth month and... and uh, you know, and abstaining from certain foods and things like that. Well, basically what had happened is it had, it had turned into empty ritualism. They were, they were just kind of going through the motions. And so you see in these messages that, that uh, the first message in verses 4 through 7, um, God rebukes their empty religion. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, what is actually, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it and the Negev and the, foot, and the, Negev and the foothills were inhabited? In other words, quit going through the motions with these external rituals Right? I want you to, to do these things out of a right heart. Do it for me. Don't do it for show. Or don't do it for yourself. Um, I just re was reminded of uh, that <laughs> recent statement that uh, a pastor, or I should say a pastor's wife in our city, uh, said 
that, hey, we don't come here and worship for God, we come and worship for us. And we're all like, what? Where in the world did you learn your theology? Uh, we don't come and worship for ourselves, we worship God because he's worthy to be worshipped. It's not for us. And anyway, if you saw the YouTube video, you know exactly what I'm talking about, who I'm talking about there. But anyway, four messages. So he rebukes them for their empty ritualism. He reminds them of their past disobedience in chapters, or chapter 7, verses 8 through 14. And then he talks about the restoration of Israel in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. And then in, at the end of the chapter, uh, he talks about the recovery of joy in the future kingdom. So again, he's going back and forth uh, between the first comings, of the first coming of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah, uh, Christ's first and second coming. So he, he gives these messages. And then we come to chapters 9 through 14, where he shares his two burdens or these weighty messages. And basically, uh, how this breaks out is chapter 9 through chapter 11, uh, basically 9 through 11, uh, is uh, the rejection of the Messiah. He's, he's burdened uh, that, that the Messiah will be rejected. And of course, that's obviously talking about what? Christ's first coming, right? His first coming when he will, he'll be rejected. This is chapters 9, 10, uh, and 11. And then... Um, and then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he talks about the reign of the Messiah. So he goes from the negative first, the rejection of the Messiah at his first coming, to the reign of the Messiah, which is obviously his second coming, right? And so it breaks down very, very nicely there. And, of course, we have that reference um, in verse... Uh, Chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Talking about how um, the Jews, when Christ returns, it's like the light switch will be turned on. And they'll get it. They'll be like, whoa, we killed our Messiah. And they'll, they'll mourn, they'll grieve. And uh, I think in conjunction with the 144,000 witnesses, right, they're going to get what? Saved. And so there'll be this huge outpouring of God's grace and mercy on the Jewish nation. And many, many Jews will come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, um, and that's what it's talking about, that, that, that they'll, they'll, be, they'll be grieving, they'll be mourning. And that's what's going to happen in the return when, when Christ returns. And then I've already read uh, some of chapter 14. But uh, let's just look at uh, maybe... How about verse 16, just to kind of wrap this thing up. Zechariah 14, 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In other words, Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem. He's already conquered the enemies of Israel. Uh, again, this is we're talking now about the millennial kingdom, I believe. Um, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts there, will be no rain on them. So we, again, even though, um, uh, even during the millennial reign, not everyone is going to be a Christian. Not everybody's going to be a follower of Christ, right? Because there'll be babies born, right, who will grow up. And we know at the end of the millennial, there'll be a great rebellion, according to Revelation chapter 20. And Satan will lead one final rebellion at the end. Um, verse 18, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them, and it will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nation who do not go to celebrate the Feast of Booze. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and will boil in them and there will be no longer there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Why? Because everything will be permeated by the holiness of Christ. 
is basically what Zachariah is saying there. So, again, feel like a rock skipping across the surface right here of Zechariah. But let's try to bring this home and, and just apply a little bit of this to our lives today. What does Zechariah mean again? The Lord remembers. Have you ever wondered if God has forgotten you? That he's not remembering you, right? Do you ever lose hope that his promises aren't true. You get frustrated, you get tired, you get discouraged, you get overwhelmed, you get maybe mistreated by someone, and, and that's typically what happens, right? You, you begin to think that the Lord's forgotten you. And that's when you need to remember that the Lord remembers. The Lord never forgets you, and he's always in complete control of time and of history and of your little life and your future. And he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Philippians 1.6, that's a promise. In the same way that God made promises to Israel that he is faithful to keep, he's made promises to you as a believer, right? That he began a good, me, a good work in you and he will carry it to completion. He will cause you to persevere. He will preserve you to the end. And guess what? The same glorious future that God has promised to Israel awaits all those who hope in Christ as their Lord and Savior. This isn't just for Israel. This is for us. Well, again, we get to go along for the ride on this deal if you trust in Christ. One commentator said it this way, the visions of Zechariah provided encouragement to the remnant of Judah who had been restored to their land. God is seen in the visions as in complete control over the affairs of the earth. His eternal holiness is the standard unto which men should strive, and all violators of this righteous standard will be judged. The nation experienced the providential care and protection of God during their day and history will forever testify to God's continued faithfulness to His promises. So this is, a, this is just an example to us that God is worthy to be trusted. God is faithful. And if he kept his promises to Israel, he'll keep his promises to us. He went on to say this, the travail of Israel will exist until the time of their ultimate victory. In other words, Israel's going to get beat up on until Jesus comes back. That's just what's going to happen. Jerusalem will be attacked by the nations, but God will grant deliverance. Gentile world powers will be broken in that final day and Christ will rule in fulfillment of his promise. The testimony of the prophets is that God is faithful. His promises are sure and true. May we never compromise God's word and may, we give, may he give us strength and boldness to proclaim it without reservation to a lost and floundering world. This should give us confidence, right, that we're on the winning side. And, and so we can share this message with joy, with hope, as we present the gospel. And, 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 and another, uh, another man wrote this. He said that God's people in Zechariah's day had to, re, had to be reminded of the gigantic implications of the project before them so that they wouldn't lose heart as they faced the hard work involved. I mean, it was not fun rebuilding that temple. There was a lot of hard work. And so what did Zechariah do? He reminded them of the gigantic implications of the project. He helped them see the big picture. We talked about that on Sunday, right? He helped them see the big picture to, to, to renew their focus and to revive them and um, energize them. And I think in a similar way, sometimes we need to be reminded, don't we, of the gigantic implications of what we're doing here. Of, of the temple building project that we're a part of, you're like, hey, wait a minute, I thought uh, we aren't the new Israel. You know, the church is not Israel. Yeah, I'm not saying that, but it's interesting in First Peter, for example, First Corinthians 3.16 likens the church to a temple, right? Uh, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit corporately. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is a choice precious in the sight of God. You also a living stone 
as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, he, he likens the church to a temple. The whole point is that we have the privilege of participating in building up the church of Jesus Christ until he returns and his glory fills the whole earth. But that's hard work to occupy until he comes, right? And so sometimes you get worn out. Sometimes you get tired. Sometimes you get frustrated. Sometimes you get overwhelmed, right? You you don't see the fruit. You don't see the results. You don't see what's, you know, and you lose sight of the big picture, and so we need to remind ourselves tonight, be reminded of the gigantic implications of what we're a part of here as the church of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. And if you've lost your joy in serving the Lord, it's likely because you've lost your future focus. All you can see is this, right? You're doing this, right? All you can see is your problems. All you can see is what's not going what right. And you've you got to get the blinders off and say, okay, God's not done with me yet. I've got this bright future. We win. And so if you lost your joy, right, it may be that you've lost your future focus or it may be that you're relying on your own strength to do the work. And that's why we need to remember Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength? You're trying to do ministry in your own strength, in your own power, in your own ability, your own eloquence, your own intelligence? You're going to get worn out. You're going to want to quit. Like, like the people of Israel, they wanted to quit. But if you rely on the strength that God provides us through the Holy Spirit, right? We can hang in there and continue to serve with joy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Zechariah. And even though we just kind of did an overview tonight, I pray that the, 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 the truths that we have seen from this book, Lord, will really impact our souls and our minds and our hearts, that we would leave here encouraged tonight, Lord, that we would be renewed in our strength uh, in the Spirit. Uh, Thank you for this helpful reminder not to try to live in our own strength or we're just going to fall flat on our face. Lord, we need your Spirit desperately. And Lord, thanks for reminding us of our future focus, of our future, that we've got a great future in store for us. No matter how bad things are going right now, uh, we've got everything to look forward to. Um, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who who has, has, is, is, has walked away from you um, and they're reaping the consequences of their sinful choices, Lord, that they would return to you tonight so that you could return to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.